so so the blocking rules are interesting because uh, they allow the government to issue an order to platforms you know asking them uh, to disable access to content and you know on the other the twitter side of this is also that it was in january 2012 that twitter changed its global policy to to basically facilitate government blocking around the world so that's when twitter said that okay we've worked out now how we can restrict content in specific countries which means that if we get government orders you know from india pakistan or turkey we will geoblock the content just in that country and so we've got the combination now right twitter's capacity and willingness to do it and the and the blocking orders i'm kunja jurasic and this is the lawfare podcast february 18th 2021. Right now in India, there's a legal battle that could portend the future of the internet. In this episode of Arbiters of Truth, Lawfare's miniseries on disinformation and misinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I talked to Chinmaya Arun, a resident fellow of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School and an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center of Internet and Society at Harvard University. She came on to discuss one of the biggest stories about freedom of expression online today. The battle between Twitter and the Indian government, which has demanded that Twitter geoblock a large number of accounts, including the account of a prominent investigative magazine, in response to protests by tens of thousands of farmers across India. Chinmay walked us through the political context of the farmers' protests, how the clash between Twitter and the Indian government is part of an increasingly constrained environment for freedom of expression in India, and where this battle might end up. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 18th. Chinmay Arun on India and the future of the internet. So, Chinmay, when it comes to online speech, the US media and Twitter sphere are currently obsessed with the Trump ban and the fact that the Facebook Oversight Board is about to hear the case. But to my mind, when it comes to the future of freedom of expression online, the far more important story is what's happening in India and in particular the showdown between the Modi government and Twitter. But before we get into the details of what's happening right now, I think it's probably important to set some groundwork so that we understand the context. So, India is the world's largest democracy, but there's been a growing crackdown on on freedom of expression and dissent in the country under the government of Prime Minister Modi. For our listeners, on a scale of like one to China, how bad is the current level of government censorship? Like, what should listeners know about the state of freedom of expression in India? I want to begin by thanking you for having me on this podcast and for taking an interest in in what's going on in India right now which perhaps I'm prejudiced because I'm Indian I, I do think is very significant for the future of freedom of expression not only because it it affects quite a lot of people given the number of people in India that are subject to the platform's regulations but also because I think it tells us a little bit about the choices that the platforms are making globally to answer your question about the state of freedom of expression in India it's interesting because india has always had a democratic culture uh, you'll see amartya sen described in his work how there's there's always been a culture of public debate and public reasoning in india so freedom of expression as a cultural phenomenon is not new to india and is not as many people suggest a western import 
But the version of it that is in the constitution of the country has to do with the nature of the democracy that we were trying to create. And you'll see that the manner in which it is worded is quite broad. And the manner in which it has been interpreted over the years has also been, I think, worth learning from. The, the first time that it was um, that the right to freedom of expression in the Constitution was amended was actually very close after an independence where an effort was made to censor a, a periodical. So it was basically a magazine that the newly formed government of India was trying to censor. And so a couple of cases went up before the Supreme Court of India, and the Supreme Court of India pointed out that you could only restrict the freedom of expression in the interests of national security, and that law and order and national security were not the same thing. And so basically, the Supreme Court said that this this effort to regulate the circulation of this publication is unconstitutional. And so it, it this this gets back, of course, to you know you, democratic dialogue always happens right between a Supreme Court and and Parliament. And so apparently, Sardar Patel, who was both a legendary figure in the independence movement and the Home Minister back then, said that this knocks the bottom out of uh, law and order regulation in India. And so they amended the constitution. The Indian First Amendment, as a result, added reasons for which freedom of expression in India could be restricted. But the first Prime Minister, Nehru, also made sure that it added the word reasonable before restriction. And so that that brought in this proportionality element, and it meant that freedom of expression could only reasonably be restricted. So that, you know, that was an interesting moment in how Article 19.1a of the Indian Constitution, where you get freedom of expression from, was was read and developed. Bringing us up to date now about how it feels in the country right now under Prime Minister Modi, what is the sort of level of sort of freedom that people feel to talk about matters of politics and and things, especially online? So Prime Minister Modi is interesting because he comes from a party, and I, I mean especially the party in which he he sort of earned his political stripes. He comes from a party that arguably doesn't quite have an entirely democratic culture internally. And so it's becoming increasingly apparent that, that the culture within which he has become a politician and the manner in which he seems to have conducted his public life says quite a lot about the way in which he thinks about how, how communication should work. And you, you'll see this, for example, in interviews in which, uh, in his in, the, in his rare public interviews in which reporters ask him difficult questions. There was one with famous journalist Karan Thapar in which the prime minister actually got up and left midway when he was asked about the Gujarat genocide. And so it, it's quite apparent from his engagement with the press that he seems unwilling to engage with difficult questions. And to entertain the idea that that it's it's okay for people to ask these questions, and I put this in the context of his political party because they're quite well known for their discipline and their cohesiveness, rather than their their sort of internal disagreements and capacity to reinvent themselves based on internal critique and debate. They they do reinvent themselves, but it tends to be more strategic than because an individual argued that they were doing something in a less than ideal way. 
And so, so it's interesting because that's one feature of the party. The other is that before Indian independence, that party always felt that India should be conceived of as a Hindu nation rather than based on territorial sovereignty. And so their vision of India was quite different from the vision of the people that wrote the Indian constitution. So that's kind of the, the historic background to what's happening right now, right? And so perhaps given that, it's not surprising that the current government is restricting the internet in a more extreme fashion and at a larger scale than the previous government has done. And I say this because one has to acknowledge that in the past, it wasn't as if the previous government had never shut down the internet. It had, but for one day in a year in Kashmir, or that the previous government hadn't issued blocking orders and frivolous ones because it had, but not again at the scale at which this government is is doing so and, and not to comprehensively shut down all dissent, the manner in which this government tends to. I know we're going to discuss the particular incident in a little more detail, the the particular incident with Twitter and in a little more detail soon. But to give you an example of the degree to which dissent is being shut down, several journalists uh, over the past few years have got into trouble for reporting what you might argue is basic information that citizens need in a democracy. And so, for example, uh, the police have been raiding the offices of journalists that covered how migrants and and the Indian poor were affected by lockdown and by by the pandemic and the you know the ways in which they were suffering that kind of brave reportage which you would you would think is central is like it's it's exactly why you have freedom of press in a democracy that's been punished and that really takes us to you asked you asked me where on a scale of 1 to china does india stand I often joke that India aspires to be China, but actually, I don't think it's that much of a joke because I have actually heard it said, both by policymakers and by judges, that, well, if China can do it, so can we. And it's interesting because, of course, the the principles to which China aspires as as a nation are different from the principles that India used to aspire to. And so to construct a new information order that resembles China would be taking many steps away from what the founders of of the Indian nation had expected that it would look like. So I, I expect that to answer your question, it appears that India is trying to control information in ways that are reminiscent of China and perhaps even uh, borrowing from some of China's strategies. And it is it aspires to be inventive by creating platforms like Alibaba and TikTok, but that part appears to be purely aspirational so far because we, you know, India banned TikTok last year and there was a lot of talk about how there will be a domestic startup that takes its place. But the app that actually took TikTok's place was Facebook Reels. So that's really where we are right now. So let's talk about Modi's Twitter use, because I think that's a there's that's an interesting aspect of this whole discussion. There's been comparisons between Modi's behavior on Twitter and Trump's behavior, obviously, before he was banned. Um, on the other hand, they actually use the platform quite differently, even if they're both very effective. So how, how would you describe how Modi uses Twitter? You know, I think that a fundamental difference in understanding Modi versus understanding Trump is that Modi is much more controlled 
in the way in which he uses social media and much more intentional in the way in which he chooses to speak. So it's interesting because from Trump, you sort of you you get what at least on the surface appears to be almost, you know, impulsive tweeting, sort of expressing his opinion on various things. With Modi, you you have to listen for it and find it in the spaces in which you see it. So he has a, a number of ways in which he intervenes. One thing is that his main audience doesn't speak English. And so his his more interesting speeches tend to be in the local language. But the, the other is also that, you know, as I described to you before, his his party has almost a, a sort of a military discipline in in how they operate. And the reason that they've been so successful is that it's not one person doing everything. It's very organized. And, you know, there's there's a series of people engaging even in the information sphere. And so it, it's not necessarily helpful all of the time to focus only on the prime minister, because sometimes it is the home minister, Amit Shah, who is saying the things that you, that you might argue are, are incitement to violence. Sometimes it's other members of the party, as you might have seen from the Wall Street Journal report. And then sometimes it's it's literally, and this is why I was saying that the China comparison is interesting. Sometimes it is literally an army of trolls. And it's it's hard to say where they've come from, but research done on on how the uh, what I'm going to call the Hindu fascists operate on social media is that they they actually they're all given almost a script and then they all tend to tweet the same thing. Absolutely. So before we dig into the specific issue that we're talking about here, I wanted to set the scene a little more by acknowledging that obviously this is not the first time there's been controversy about social media in India. I think probably most famously was the role of WhatsApp in some lynchings a few years back. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I gladly. I, you know, I, I wrote a paper about this. The, the controversy was triggered by the fact that there were you know, what was being described as rumors spreading on WhatsApp are resulting in real world lynching. And the, the rumors were, were about a range of things. Often they were about beef. And, you know, I, I know that to people sitting in, in the U.S., that's like seriously like about a steak. But so, so one of the things that the Hindu Nationalist Party has done in India is it's been trying to get Hindus behind a particular version of Hinduism, uh, which is like typically privileged caste Hinduism. You know, these Hindus don't eat beef. It's not true that all Hindus don't eat beef, depending on your caste, that there are Hindus who eat beef, there are even Kashmiri Brahmins that eat beef, but we will leave facts aside for this. Um, And so it became one of the sticking points of battle, which was uh, that eating beef or killing cows is offensive to Hindus. And so the rumors that would spread would be that X person, usually Muslim, is transporting beef or that he has beef in his freezer. And that that led to people lynching the people about whom the rumors were being spread. More often than not, it turned out that they didn't have beef or, or they weren't transporting beef or whatever. So they, these rumors weren't necessarily true all of the time. I, you know, I want to be fair and also point out that there were rumors about the kidnapping of children. And those rumors typically led to the lynching of outsiders. And so I was looking at this in... The Indian media, for some reason, was discussing it as fake news and was very focused on uh, verifying these rumors. They seem to think that if you can find a way to tell these people that what the man has in his fridge is actually not beef, 
then that's going to help with lynching. And it just, you know, I was looking at this and saying that, so you're basically saying that if he does have beef in his fridge, it's normal to lynch him. It's obviously not. And so the problem over here is not that the that the rumor is false. The problem is bigger than that because it's, it is really far from normal to to lynch people for storing beef or for because you're afraid of child kidnappers right and that's that's when i started looking at the relationship between online rumors and offline violence and it it ties in really with all literature on incitement to violence which is that there's a sense of instability which there was at the time and typically there's also the the people doing the lynching have absorbed this idea that that if they are violent, not only will, will there be no consequences for them, but that it is the right and noble thing to do. So it's a, it's a kind of thing that will will lead to people around them admiring them and sort of treating them as heroes. And and you receive that message usually when the leaders around you, you know, including political and law enforcement, you know, the elders in your community are reinforcing these messages to you. And so so my argument in that paper was that WhatsApp is a part of this because it enables these messages to spread faster. But the fact that the violence is happening says something about our society also. And if the rapid rise of incidents suggests that it's a current political order, that might be the problem, then maybe it's not ideal for WhatsApp to be discussing with the Indian government exclusively how they should react to this. Because what the Indian government wanted, of course, was the ability to trace all messages within WhatsApp. And then, you know, it's hard to say what what they might choose to do uh, with that ability. To give you an example of something that they did, like literally in the last seven days, they have arrested a a young woman in her very early 20s for helping prepare an activist toolkit about the farmers' protests. So, so given that that's the relationship between the Indian government and dissent right now, I also thought that it wouldn't be ideal if if a platform like WhatsApp chose to to offer the government access to basically. It's a very politic way of not not ideal. Um, so it strikes me we haven't heard much about WhatsApp in India lately. And, you know, I, I doubt that's because all of the cultural tensions have subsided and stability has returned and there's no more rumors on the service. So I'm wondering, you know, why you think that is, whether the media just got bored or distracted or whether I know that WhatsApp introduced a forwarding limit in, in the service so that things couldn't move quite so fast. Maybe that's had a profound effect and and there aren't as many high profile incidents associated with it. Why do you think it is that we haven't heard about WhatsApp anymore? I I suspect that it's a number of things. I'm going to speculate. Well, one is that in general, the media has been under a lot of pressure. And so you'll see that recently the big stories about Facebook, at least they've come from the Wall Street Journal. Although, you know, there are newspapers that are covering their companies quite brilliantly. I think that it, it appears that insiders are seem more willing to talk to to the foreign press than to the local press. So that's a part of it. And related to that is the fact that journalists and the media are under a lot of pressure in India. They, you know, routinely getting police complaints filed against them for for doing the kind of stories that the media should be doing. So it's it's partly that and you know that kind of thing also tends to lead to a chilling effect uh, and so while i want to applaud all the all the brave journalists that are doing their job despite being 
under threat physically and legally. It, it also means that a lot of other journalists can see what the consequences of reporting anything that the government might perceive as as uh, negative might be. So it's partly that, but it's also just the the crises that India has been going through in the past year. And so, you know, January last year, there was a debate uh, raging in India about citizenship because uh, the new citizenship law was was going to put people of Muslim origin in an untenable and unconscionable position as regards their Indian citizenship. So there were protests raging all over India about that. You know, then the, from time to time, the Indian government captures the Indian media by skirmishes with China or Pakistan. Uh, and so there's all of that going on. And then, of course, COVID hit. Uh, there was a lockdown and the media was all about about the pandemic and, again, of course, about how a specific group of Muslims might be responsible for spreading the pandemic. And that, thankfully, was proved later to be an exaggerated and not entirely true story, but it was all over the media for a long time. And so, you know, I think that the short answer to your question might be that there's a lot of fires in India and there are very few journalists who have the resources and the courage, the energy and the time to cover them, which means that they have to move from story to story and can't always keep track of exactly what's happening with WhatsApp versus what's not. That's a part of it. The other part of it that I would be interested in, I don't know the answer to this question, is, of course, that the tech companies also negotiate with the government behind closed doors. And so the way the whole focus on WhatsApp started in the first place was that the lynchings were being reported. And then the government reacted to the lynching saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's WhatsApp's fault. And so eventually... You know, both both these stories seem to have gone out of the media. Does this mean that there is no violence taking place in India? I think the answer to that question is that's highly unlikely. They're not being reported for whatever reason. I expect that the pandemic has changed things a little bit, but we're not we're not going to know in what way until until a reporter is able to cover it. So you say that there's a lot of fires in India. Let's turn to the the specific fire that we're talking about here. The tangles with Twitter and the debates over the internet that we're discussing have happened in the context of a, a huge movement that's being called the farmers' protests. So what are the protests about? And can you give us a, an idea of their scale? Like to, to put it in sort of terms that, you know, a provincial American audience might understand, is this sort of Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter scale or something else entirely? Oh, it's enormous. Last September, the Indian parliament in what has become a fairly typical hurried fashion passed three farm, farm laws that changed the way in which the agricultural markets for certain staples like wheat and rice work in Punjab and Haryana. And that's uh, that's really what prompted the protests from the farmers who do not agree at all with, with the government's assessment that the opening up of their markets is going to secure their future in any way. So currently, the way in which these agricultural markets work is that they are heavily regulated, which means that the farmers sell these staples at that they grow in for fixed prices in what I understand are government-run markets. And what the laws attempt to do is permit new entrants and, you know, create your sort of classic free market uh, for, for the selling of produce. 
Now, it's interesting because welfare economists like Jean Drez agree with the farmers in their deep skepticism about what this change would mean for their future. The farmers essentially fear, probably correctly, that they will initially be offered very high prices from, you know, corporate conglomerates like Reliance, and that that over time, as the as the competition is after the competition is driven out of the market, that the prices will fall low, and that the farmers will not be able to organize and will not be able to assess the market because they don't have the kind of resources and information that these large companies have. And that they will then find themselves in an extremely vulnerable position. So they do not support this change at all and have, have out of concern about this when tens of thousands of them have been protesting. It began from Punjab and Haryana. It, it took place on the radial roads of Delhi through the bitter winter. And then there was, there was a display on Republic Day when traditionally a parade is held in the Red Fort in, in Delhi. And that, you know, that's, that's a parade that most households in India watch. The farmers came into Delhi with their tractors and had almost a citizen's parade that was cheered on the streets by the people of Delhi. And that unfortunately was attacked by the police. For a large part, the farmers' protests have been very peaceful, despite attacks from the government. The, the laws are currently there's been a stay from the Supreme Court and the government's been negotiating with the farmers quite aggressively, but the farmers are standing firm and are not in favor of this change. So the other thing that's been taking place, which is really why we're having this conversation, is that, that the farmers have been trying to get the rest of India and the rest of the world to hear about their protest. And, and the government's increasingly getting aggressive, both with the protesters, um, you know, arresting several of them, contesting reports of police violence against protesters. A senior journalist called Rajdeep Sardesai was suspended from air for a few days because he he reported that a protester had been killed by the police. And so his news channel uh, suspended him, which which tells you a little bit about the state of journalism in India. And so that's, that's really the story of what the farmers have been trying to do with their protests. And as a part of their advocacy strategy, there's been a point at which they and their supporters have reached out to international news news outlets and to international celebrities to to speak up for their cause. To answer your question about the scale, the unions reported in November that that the nationwide strike taking place thanks to the farmers' protests and to support the farmers' unions consisted of an estimate of 250 million people. Also in late November, farmers had converged around the the border points entering Delhi, and and the the estimated numbers there were two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand, and so that just gives you a sense of the of the number of protesting farmers. And while the farmers of Punjab and Haryana are comparatively better off, uh, farmers' incomes in India tend to be extremely low on average and across India are sometimes so low, plunging the farmers into debt, that that farmers' suicides have been a subject of study in India. Um, and so, so that gives you a sense of both the, the scale of the protests, but also the the great vulnerability of the farmers. And so it's it's enormous and it's been going on for months. How important has social media been to the organization and rallying of these protests? Like, would it be fair to call these social media protests or is that overstating it? 
I, you know, I I wouldn't want to take away from the physicality of the protest. So I, I would say that we should definitely, first and foremost, think of it as a physical protest. But the purpose of protests, of course, is, is to convey information and, and to, to get people to put pressure on the government to listen, right? Because the fact of the protest is clearly not making them listen. And so, so of course, over time, the protesters also moved on to social media and started mobilizing to get people like Rihanna and, and, and uh, Greta Thunberg to speak up in, in their cause. And that's, that's really, that's, that's what's co- caused the controversy at this point, right? You know, I, I also want to point out here that, again, over a year ago, the people of Kashmir used to use exactly the strategy. And so when, uh, when Kashmir lost its special status in India, a special status that was granted by the constitution, one of the things that happened with Kashmir is a complete internet blackout. And the reason that, that that happened was that over the last few decades, the Indian state has systematically destroyed the Kashmiri media. And so for Kashmiris to, to protest and to communicate with the rest of India and you know, with the rest of, to the rest of the world what is happening with them, they always go to the social media. And so one of the things that this, this government has taken to doing is to cut the Kashmiris off from the social media. This is not the first time that they've done it. And when I say this, I mean the long internet shutdown. Twitter specifically had been in some controversy for cooperating with government orders to, to block Kashmiris' accounts in the past. And the former UN Special Rapporteur, David Kay, had, uh, had written to Twitter asking them why they're cooperating with these orders and what they've done to, to question them. Um, and so, you know, now we have mainland India similarly engaged in these protests and the government's issued notices to, to Twitter trying to, to ensure that these accounts are, are blocked. So let's talk more about that. So my understanding is that Twitter blocked more than 250 accounts, so belonging to activists, political commentators, a movie star, and this investigative news magazine called The Caravan. Then about six hours later, after Twitter met with IT ministry officials, the accounts were restored. So how big a deal were these blocks, right? Like what, I guess one way to say this is, you know, what kind of role does the caravan play in India? How significant is it that Twitter blocked the account of this magazine and all the other accounts? The Caravan, as, as you describe, is an investigative news magazine. It is a very credible magazine. You, you'll find a, a lot of the kind of detailed, in-depth investigations that take both time and resources, as well as courage. Uh, you, you'll see that quite frequently in the Caravan. And, you know, to, to block a magazine like that, because they didn't block one story that the magazine did, right? They blocked the, the whole magazine. It's shocking in a manner in which I think that if if the New Yorker were to be blocked in the U.S., I think that that would be pretty radical over here. It is shocking in quite the same manner, I would say. So so it is significant. All, all of the other accounts that were blocked, that that was shocking as well. But to go directly after the press in this manner, I think that that's, that's a significant step. So can you talk to us then about the legal framework that enables the government to make such an order to Twitter to suspend entire accounts. Like it's a legal order. It wasn't just a a phone call or sort of pressure. On what grounds can the government make such an order? Oh, 
Okay, so there's a there's a long story here, but the short version of it is uh, so the Indian IT Act that confers a safe harbor on Indian platforms, much in the way in which Section 230 does in the United States. It also has a way in which the government can notify intermediaries that they're hosting illegal content and require them to take it down. And the procedure through which that happens is is detailed in these in these rules that we all just call the blocking rules and unimaginatively. And I think that let's just stick with that name for now. So, so the blocking rules are interesting because uh, they allow the government to issue an order to platforms, you know, asking them uh, to disable access to content. And you know, on the other, the Twitter side of this is also that it was in January 2012 that Twitter changed its global policy. To, to basically facilitate government blocking around the world. So that's when Twitter said that, okay, we've worked out now how we can restrict content in specific countries, which means that if we get government orders you know, from India, Pakistan, or Turkey, we will geoblock the content just in that country. And so we've got the combination now, right? Twitter's capacity and willingness to do it and the, and the blocking orders and, and the blocking rules. But the, the process outlined in the blocking rules, it's interesting. One is that, uh, that the orders are confidential, which interferes substantially with the transparency of this process. And the other is that the orders go to the intermediary. And then in theory, they're also supposed to go to the content originator if the content originator can you know reasonably be found. And I'm curious. I don't know the answer to this question in part because the orders are confidential, but I wonder whether Caravan Magazine was, was ever issued a notice uh, because it should have been. And, and the idea is basically that both Twitter and Caravan Magazine are entitled to a hearing and then to appeal if they, if they disagree with the order. That's the, that's the legal system that's followed. Now, the, the trouble with this legal system is that there, there was a what is considered the big Indian internet freedom case, Shreya Single versus Union of India, that it went up before the Supreme Court. And it was mainly about the criminalization of speech online. But one of the, one of the questions being asked in the case was, is this blocking system that the blocking rules use, is that constitutional? The Supreme Court seems to have assumed that the government does notify the content originator it didn't discuss the rules in very much detail. It declared them as constitutional, registering its assumption that the content originator is heard wherever reasonably possible. So that's interesting because they said the rules are constitutional, but they also said that as far as we can tell, you know, the content originator is given notice wherever possible and is heard. And that implies that Caravan Magazine should be given notice and should be given a hearing. But it's not clear to me that that's what happened. Now, assuming it didn't, Twitter still is in a position in which it can question the order and say that this this is not a this order is not consistent with the constitution, and so we're going to appeal. And I I gather that that's what Twitter eventually did. Although you know, since it is not a transparent process, this is the beauty of confidentiality. It's not clear exactly what they said and what form of action they plan to take. Yeah, that's certainly a really remarkable part of all of this, that the orders themselves can't be made public under under the law. So also under that law, Twitter employees face up to seven years of imprisonment for defying an order. Nevertheless, in an extraordinary blog post in response to the orders, 
Twitter said that it had blocked more than 500 accounts as a result of several orders, but that we have not taken any action on accounts that consist of news media entities, journalists, activists, and politicians. To do so, we believe, would violate their fundamental right to free expression under Indian law. And then the post concludes boldly that it, and I quote, strongly believes that the tweets should flow. And that's a reference to a blog post that Twitter wrote during the Arab Spring in, in 2011 that was titled The Tweets Must Flow. And that blog post now feels like it was from such a different time, you know, when, when technology was sort of seen as this more inherently liberating force rather than sort of the turn that we've seen in the last few years where the dark sides have become more apparent. And it seems to me like we swing between these two extremes, like of, of social media is the bad guy or the good guy and that, that maybe it's, you know, shockingly a little bit more complicated than that. And so I'm just curious, you know, were you surprised by Twitter's actions here? Has it ever sort of taken such a defiant stance before? Or is there some reason or way to explain why it's doing it now? I would be curious about who made the I, I am curious about who made the decision, you know, because as you point out, up to 2011, Twitter was very much the freedom platform, right, where even Facebook was fairly compliant. And I, I gauge these things based on how much the Indian government dislikes a particular platform. So Twitter was always, you know, was was always uh, the one that they liked least because Twitter was the least responsive in 2011 to the Indian government's blocking requests. Uh, but then, you know, as I told you, in January 2012, Twitter started geo-blocking content. And I think that that's the point at which things changed a little bit. From that period on, honestly, the attention has been on Facebook really more than Twitter because many more Indian users are on Facebook and then on WhatsApp than, than are on Twitter. And so it's only when the Kashmir question came up where Twitter had complied with the Indian government's blocking orders uh, about Kashmir, that's really one of the few times in which Twitter um, sort of entered the public eye and entered controversy. But again, going back to, I, I think the question was, what was the main platform that was being used to criticize the government? So, you know, as you point out, it's interesting now that that Twitter has chosen to push back and has chosen to, to push the Indian government back publicly. And I wonder whether it has anything to do with where the decision was made, whether whether it was made in the US or whether it was made in India, whether the employment structure of the company has changed within India. It would be interesting to see what specifically has changed, right? Because it's clear what changed between Arab Spring and Twitter's new willingness to cooperate. I want to dig into that a little more, actually, because on the face of it, Twitter's blog post, on the one hand, it's sort of very defiant, but on the other hand, it does say, you know, they did block more than 500 accounts as a result of government orders, which sort of leads me to what's probably a very basic question. Like, why is Twitter playing ball at all here? Right? Like, why why is Twitter saying, okay, we're going to do what you want and block those 500 accounts? You know, what is the process that leads Twitter to go from 2011, the tweets must flow or the free speech platform to now where it's saying we do believe that there are fundamental values of free speech we need to protect, but we'll work with you to block those other accounts. So with all the platforms, I, you know, I gather based on reading scholars that have come before me from Rebecca McKinnon to Kate Klonick, 
they've all recorded what I think are the two most plausible reasons for platforms to cooperate. One is that they don't want to lose access to a market and they're fearful that they'll get blocked. And the other is that they have local staff that, as you know, as Evelyn pointed out, may be under threat if if they choose not to comply. And so that I that I imagine is what made Twitter feel like they should comply, you know, and I think added to that. So so one of my arguments with the major platforms in the past has been that you're you're telling me that you're afraid that the Indian government will block WhatsApp in India. If the Indian election is taking place within a year and the Indian government likes to use WhatsApp as a part of its campaigning, what makes you imagine that the Indian government will block WhatsApp at this point? Right. Uh, And so the WhatsApp lynchings, for example, that negotiation was happening a little bit before the elections. I I would not say that as easily today as as I would have a few years ago, because the Indian government did block TikTok uh, last year. And, you know, it is getting, you know, I would say much more hawkish about its willingness to block platforms. So so I think that the calculus has changed a little bit. And that might be why Twitter is possibly at this, um, you know, sitting, I, I, I don't want to speak for Twitter, but I can see how it's a, it's a difficult choice to make where you, you don't want to enable what is blatant authoritarian censorship. But on the other hand, you're also aware that if you're too defiant, there is a high risk that you get blocked in India. So how does this end? Um, do do you have any predictions about who will blink first? You know, is there a possibility that, as with TikTok, uh, the government could completely ban Twitter, or is there some way that Twitter could call the government's bluff, as you say, given how reliant the government could be, or Twitter employees, you know, go to jail? Do you see an obvious, you know, next step here? I don't, to be perfectly honest. You know, this is the trouble with a political system changing so dramatically so fast. So like I said, four four years ago, I think I would have said that the odds that they'll actually block Twitter are very low. And, you know, I would have said that confidently. Now it's just, it's really anybody's guess what they'll do. And, you know, I, I also want to to acknowledge that we we only discuss the visible things, right? So we know that Twitter could be blocked. We know that their employees in India could be targeted. We don't know how much of Twitter's profits come from India because I see that they target ads these days. We don't know what each of the employees in India has at stake. We don't know whether the company is able to restructure easily so that it doesn't, you know, so one of the things that I say to the companies in response to the hostage problem is that if you know that this country is potentially dangerous for your employees, why do you have employees in it? You know, and so I I don't know how easy it is for, for Twitter to restructure and to make sure that it doesn't have employees in India. If it does that, then it will be in violation of other Indian government laws, uh, you know, other, other rules that the Indian government is coming up with. Uh, so, you know, it's it's hard to say because I think that India is in a in a state in which it's become unpredictable the manner in which regulation and enforcement of law takes place, and and in instability it's really it is hard to say what the outcome will be. And it's a hard line to walk as well. You see this in in debates around it where you know the 
they are obviously exposing themselves to risk and pressure when they have employees there. But on the other hand, if they don't have employees there, it's hard to get local knowledge and, and local context, which is, which is so important. I'm curious about what, what you think of the role of courts here and, and sort of, you know, you mentioned that this can head to the courts. And you also mentioned a big case in, in 2015 when the Supreme Court struck down a bunch of restrictions on online speech as unconstitutional. So that suggests that the judiciary has quite a bit of spine. How independent is the judiciary? And, you know, if, if Twitter challenges the order, you know, what should we think about their likelihood of success? So the judiciary is the reason that I'm being hesitant in 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 my sort of crystal ball gazing, which is that the judiciary has been a lot more cautious in the way it has ruled in the last few years. And so, for example, when the Kashmir situation took place, including a full internet shutdown for so long that all the Kashmiris, one, one day all of the Kashmiris just disappeared off the WhatsApp groups. And the reason was that WhatsApp had never anticipated that anyone would be taken off the internet for 90 days and had assumed that if they haven't used the app for 90 days, they're, you know, they've lost their phone or otherwise can't <laughs> access the app. And so you automatically got deleted. And like that is like literally how long the Kashmiris were entirely offline. And the Supreme Court chose not to intervene which, you know, I think says quite a lot about the state of the Indian judiciary today. It's also, as you can imagine, dramatically different from a time in which the Supreme Court said that you cannot have overbroad laws permitting the arrest of, you know, people who say things that are annoying online. And so, again, it's it's hard to, you know, you, you said 2015, and I was like, wow, it just, it feels like a lifetime ago given how much has changed. To, to give you examples of uh, of the sort of thing that the judiciary has been coming up with recently, uh, and here, you know, I, I do want to caveat this by saying that one is that, you know, the Indian Supreme Court sits in benches, and so often the outcome of cases can depend on which which two or three judges heard that particular case. But it's also true that the uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court plays a strong role in the allocation of cases. And that system has been controversial in the last few years. So controversial, in fact, that four Supreme Court judges actually gave a press conference talking about the problems with the way in which that power is being wielded. It's really, it is hard to say what would happen if these cases went up before the Indian judiciary. Again, the answer to that question would have been easier uh, five or six years ago, but India has changed. And, and the institutions and the way they work have changed. So one of the things that's really interesting here is there's a real way in which an American company, i.e. Twitter, making judgments about the Indian public sphere based on American speech norms is actually problematic. Like India is still a democracy and the history of social media in this sense is a history of American companies and them sort of imposing their norms and values on on the rest of the world. And there's this tension between asking and making sure that these tech giants obey local laws on the one hand and them needing to uphold human rights on the other. And so, you know, in most cases, we would think that tech companies should obey orders from democratically elected governments, like maybe Germany or the US, for example. But 
on the other hand, asking Twitter to decide on which governments are adequately democratic or which laws are, you know, adequately sort of legitimate uh, feels very unsatisfactory, not least because they are driven by profits and they have their own interests at stake and not just their users' rights. So I'm sort of wondering how you think we should think about this tension between obedience to local law and the need to respect human rights. You know, I I think that you've flagged this correctly, right? So up to now, as a citizen of a fairly functional democracy, it was it was easy for someone like me to say, well, just follow the Indian constitution because it has a pretty robust freedom of expression safeguard. But, you know, when a country reaches a stage in which it starts seeing the extent of, of uh, institutional failure that India is seeing, you know, and that I think it's fair to say that that's been recorded by you know democracy index indexes like freedom of the world and others are uh, are beginning to register the change in india that as you say puts the platforms in a difficult position and i would articulate it not necessarily as a conflict of us law versus another country's norms but as a question of what are the companies willing to enable and so you know Thankfully, Twitter chose to push back this time. I'm thinking about what would what would have happened if Twitter didn't put up a fight, and it said that okay, we're just going to respect you, the democratically elected government, and we're going to censor everything you ask us to. Or potentially in the future, say Twitter appeals this and it goes up to the judiciary, and the judiciary orders it to follow the Indian government's orders, right? We're going to be in a situation in which Twitter is reflecting back to the rest of India an edited public sphere, in which is of of the nature that we have we we associate with China these days, right? One way to look at it, which I don't subscribe to, is that that this is the government that the Indian people voted for, and you know this is this this is what they asked for. But I think that the other way to look at it is that we, you know, as as you pointed out, Evelyn, there there are international human rights norms that India agreed to comply with, and that Twitter agreed to uphold to its as as far as possible. And it's it's a difficult question that is before the companies of do you do you agree to withdraw from a country rather than to enable its sort of extreme censorship of its citizens' voices? I, you know, that's the way that I would think about it without offering you an answer. No, I mean, I don't think anyone has an answer to that question. So it's an extremely unfair one. But, you know, to me, that's why I open by saying, I think this is the most important story in the world right now in relation to the future of online speech, because squaring that circle really will determine the shape of the internet in countries all around the world, especially as governments from Poland to Brazil to Myanmar to others like the EU and the UK and the US are seeking to rein in tech giants. And I'm sure that that's at play here as well. Like Twitter is not just talking to the Indian government, but it's talking to a bunch of governments around the world that are watching this very closely, as we will continue to do as well. So thank you so much for helping us bring more attention and and, and context to this issue, Chimai. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, 
and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.